Welcome to the Big Break Software Podcast. We'll be talking with software startup founders, software coaches, and consultants, and how they found their own software success. And now, let's get started with the show. Hi, everyone. This is Jordy Wardman here, host of the Big Break Software Podcast, where I talk to top leaders in the software field like Seth Godin, Andrew Warner of Mixergy, and many more. Today's episode is brought to you by OneStop.io, which I co-founded after being in SaaS for nearly a decade. We have 45 developers waiting to take your idea to fruition. If you want a reliable full-stack development team with top talent that costs half as much as in-house developers and you can think of us as your outsourced CTO, as we've got 20 years of development, entrepreneur, and business experience to help keep your project from ending up in the software graveyard. We specialize in software as a service and software startups. Contact us at onestop.io so we can spec out your project today. Today, I have uh, first-time entrepreneur Kelsey Recht, founder of VenueBook, which she founded in 2010. Over the years, she's raised a $10 million in venture capital funds. Today, we're going to take a stroll down memory lane, find out how she came up with the idea for VenueBook, where she got started, and how she was able to pull together investment funds to manage over 2,200 venues. How are you today, Kelsey? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing great, thanks. Um, I'm going to start off the show a little different and throw you um, – a question, what is a fun fact about you that not many people know? Good question. Uh, I was a competitive figure skater growing up. Oh, really? Of, okay. Won, won a bunch of regional championships. Okay. Yeah. And what yeah. sort of time frame was that? It's just sort of like what ages were what age were you when you were doing that? From about five to like 16 or 17. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Yeah. That, that is fun. Mm-hmm. And you, 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 do you still go out on the ice? Every once in a while. Um, yeah. I'm teaching my kids how to skate, so we take them out every once in a while. Yeah, as uh, you were telling overall. me before the show, you are in Minnesota. There's probably not much ice right now, but a good place to do that, right? Well, shockingly, it's, it's, it's early April, and I'm looking out my window, and it's actually snowing today. Oh, really? So okay. There is so no there ice, is some, but it is okay. snowing. Okay. You, know, you never know what you're going to get here in the spring in Minnesota. Yeah. Is it is it going to be spring or is it going to be still like that last gap yeah. of winter here? I, I got I got you. Okay. Why don't you tell me about um, who your customer is for VenueBook and what what's the core problem that you solve? Mm-hmm. So at its heart, what VenueBook really focuses on is how do you make it faster and easier to book events. And one of the things that VenueBook does really differently than anybody else out there is actually take a lot of the learnings of the technology that exists in the travel ecosystem for airline seats and sleeping rooms, hotel sleeping rooms, and build connectivity to make it easier to book digitally. And what I mean by that is that at the core problem, uh, event planners cannot get access to availability pricing and digital booking because websites that display venues don't actually connect into the venue event reservation systems that sit on property at hotels, restaurants, general event spaces. And so what VenueBook does is we connect into those systems of record and provide booking software 
um, that pulls out all of that information, real-time availability, um, pricing, and allows for digital booking, and then sends that out via booking API to end partners and also feeds venuebook.com. So what we have in terms of technology is, is something that would be mo most easily compared to some of the global distribution systems that exist in the travel ecosystem like Expedia or something right like, now. Yeah. Yes, but for meetings and events overall. And you know, at its core, booking meetings and events has been an open problem for a while. But one of the things that has held it back from moving digital is the lack of connectivity overall directly into the inventory. and. What I mean by that is that if you think about a hotel that has 20 meeting rooms, every single one of those meeting rooms might be a unique piece of inventory. And so to really be able to have digital booking, you need a true feed of what inventory is available to be able to provide it. Because let's say you have a booking come in that that room isn't available. There might actually be no other room that's a really good fit for that that event because every single one of the 20 meeting rooms is completely distinct. One has six 500, one six 10, one six 50. And so the connectivity has really held back this industry from moving online. Um, and we saw that in our marketplace. And so that's why we built that booking software um, to be the translator in between the, the reservation systems that sit on property for events and then the end booking engines for meetings and events which we include venuebook.com in, but we have a number of enterprise meeting and event partners um, that will be integrating with our API here in 2020. Okay, great. So um, to walk me back to the time when you first discovered this problem, as I understand you have a financial background, right? So you were mm -hmm. working at Fidelity in Boston and um, what did you leave? You left um, financial and then you were like the financial services sector and you were sort of interested in going out on your own or what got you into this space in the beginning? So I was the head of um, finance for a startup nonprofit in the Chicago area called Minds Matter. And we were doing a lot of fundraisers and trying to sort of get the word out and plan events for the nonprofit. And in that process, I really learned how difficult it was to book a meeting and event venue. What, what is interesting, though, is that I knew that I knew the, that side of the world. Um, so when I moved to New York City um, and had this idea, I ended up going out and recruiting a bunch of people from the venue world to come join me because one of the things that was clear is that I sort of knew my pain point from that side of the market, but I didn't know what it was like to actually sit in a venue. You know, maybe maybe I'd waitressed at a, at a restaurant, you know, growing up, but I hadn't really ever run a, a restaurant or event venue or a hotel. And so we recruited a lot of people from that vertical and the core of the problem that we realized was really that venues weren't digital. To go back to this connectivity, I mean, how do you bring digital booking into a world where venues still aren't digital? So you first need to make them digital, and then you need to be able to provide digital booking to them overall. Okay, so when you say that, that the problem was that you were just getting frustrated, you would go to an event and it was just like a disaster every time you, they couldn't figure it out, or what was the specific problem that you, that, that, that you were coming up with time and again? It was the idea that, first off, you never you didn't know who hosted events because there was no place to go to look for venues. Um, you didn't know um, all the specifications of events. You didn't know how many people they fit, what hours they're willing to do events. 
You didn't know what the price was of that venue. I mean, imagine having to call American Airlines every time you wanted to fly from San Francisco to New York to try to figure out, okay, what's the price? Great. Okay, let me go back and talk to my team. Do I want to do that or not? You also didn't know what was available. So what was happening is that we were basically just making random calls um, to venues in hopes that they may host an event. Or what we were doing was we were, you know, picking a, a location in Chicago that we thought we might want to host our fundraisers and walking down the streets, walking into the spaces that we could find to see if they would host. And so it was a massive search and discovery problem where we knew what we wanted to do, but we couldn't figure out what was a good fit for what we wanted to do because there was really no way to find that information online. It all had to be done offline. Okay, so you're so you're in Chicago and um, and you just, you see this problem and you're like, I, I want to go solve this. Is that what it was? It was like this problem is so bad, and I just really want to be an entrepreneur. Is that is that sort of what your thinking was? And you're like, I'm going to leave this. I, I know this is a huge problem. Yes, though I will say I did. You know, coming from a finance background, I knew. I knew that I really liked working at more of in the startup early stage um, world, which may seem not aligned with having a finance background, but my first job out of school at Fidelity was extremely entrepreneurial. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I was a stock research analyst. I, they basically were told, here are your 40 companies. Uh, here's your corporate credit card. Go figure out how to make us money. Yeah. Um, and then come back and tell us what to do. And so it was, I mean, for somebody, you know, 22, with you know like pretty fun. little training yeah it, it was a lot of fun yeah. um and and so it was very much like go make your own brand and process and like figure out a way you know we don't really care what the path is we just we have just a really simple goal and so what i found is i really really liked that world and operating within that world mm -hmm. but i wanted to operate i really wanted to operate so i felt that i was just predicting what others were going to do versus me being the one making the decisions around the operations of the company and so when i had this idea i'd been sitting there debating okay do i eventually maybe want to go and be a venture capitalist or do i want to go start a company or do i want to go work for a startup and you know at the time i had the idea and felt like there's no better time than the present to go start a company um, you know, as I always like to joke in my like, 10 years, you're an overnight success. You know, we had no, we had no fit, like kids, we had no mortgage, like we, you know, it was a good time. Yeah. And so decided to kind of swing for the fences and, you know, looking at it, back at it, you know, I was very interested in the venture side of the world, but I felt, you know, what could I really add to venture until I'd actually operated in the trenches and known what it was like to run a company. Um, it's sort of the idea that, you know, investors always like to bet on second time entrepreneurs because they've, they've already learned from their mistakes yeah. um, with, you know, the first, uh, their first company. And it was the idea that I would be, if I really eventually wanted to go down the venture route, I'd be a much better uh, VC if I'd actually had some time operating the company and really being in the trenches in that respect. Is that sort of the plan then still? You're still looking kind of down the road at venture, getting back into venture? I think it would depend. You know, I, I like operating. Um, I love to kind of, you know, lead a team. Mm -hmm. uh, I, you know, somebody, one of the things that ended up driving me actually to start a company was, you know, I had a, a mentor who was a VC at the time and he sort of told me like, well, do you want to be, do you want to be in the weeds making the decisions or, you know, as a VC, you really spend 70% of your time with the companies that are, that are in the most trouble. So you're the fixer. 
So do you yeah. want to be the fixer that's coming in to help and let your good companies run? Or do you want to like sort of be in the trenches making the decisions? And I thought that was a really good way to frame it. And he actually pushed me to choose the operations okay. route, um, overall. Okay. Um, you know, what I feel like we have a lot more to do here at Venue Book. So like that's my, that's my focus for now. There's one thing I've learned as an entrepreneur, like you can't predict the future. I mean, could anybody have predicted, you know, what is going on right now with coronavirus in the world yeah. and, you know, events and your ability to go anywhere coming to almost complete standstill? No, um, overall. And so, you know, my goal has been focused on like a very long-term goal and continue to focus on the goal, but realize that the path can lead towards that goal and it's not always a straight line. Yeah, that's right. So, um, okay, so so we're back. Um, you're you're you you found the idea. Uh, you're not a technical person, though. So so um, how did you find the? Did you uh, bring on a technical co-founder? Um, walk me through your MVP. Mm-hmm. So I built a very very basic MVP with some. You built it. You're so you're a programmer too. Not, oh, with okay. some overseas developers. Okay. Okay. Um, it was not very good. But you know, that first one is not very good, but I used that actually to go out and recruit um, a true early technical hire who'd been yeah. fundamental in building the likes of paperless posts. Okay. And so we really kind of entered into the journey together and built up you know, the core of what is now you know, venue book uh, overall. Um, okay. And so what I found was obviously it's so hard to, to find true technical leaders Mm-hmm. Uh, but I also feel that in a world where it's competitive, if you've been able to get something done and show that you're scrappy and can put stuff together and there's some merit behind the idea, that it gets much easier to go out and recruit uh, overall. Sort of, It's kind of like how, you know, it's like you have a little bit of a track record. If you can get something moving on your own, even if it's really scrappy, that's, uh, you already have a track record when you're going out trying to hire um, those types of people. Just like I find once you have de- some developers that are good, they can go out and recruit other developers. It just builds on itself in that respect. Okay. So, so uh, you b- basically, you were like out of pocket, pocket to, um, to fund the MVP. Do you remember about how much it cost? Oh, that's a good question. Probably in the like 10,000 to 15,000 yeah. range. Sounds- we did it really cheaply. Um, yeah, that sounds that. reasonable. But mm-hmm. it sounds to me like so. So what I'm imagining is there's a technology where you have to keep implementing with different APIs or something. Is that right? It is sort of like so. When you build an MVP, you have like maybe you have one. Um, I don't know. Maybe you plug in with Hilton. Is that like? Is that where? Is that right? So you you plug in with Hilton's right. back end, like their PMS or something. Uh, Fidelio maybe was around back then. And so you plug in with one and you say, okay, from this using the 80, 20 rule, I can get probably like, uh, you know, maybe 20 clients or something to come on pretty easily. Is that sort of the, the, the philosophy with the MVP? Well, that's a really good question. So in the early days of venue book, we actually had our own venue booking software system that fed into our marketplace and booking tools. So we actually had, a true reservation system and okay. venues venues loved that reservation system but we realized we either needed to take that system and build it so it addressed all venues or we need to we needed to think differently and be an open integrated system overall and we chose to go the open integrated system route where what we did is that we had a lot of venues coming to us that wanted to work with us but 
they wanted to stay on their main reservation system. So they wanted to hook into our booking software, but stay on their main reservation system. Because okay. if, if you look at the reservation, the back end reservation system, you know, Amadeus Advanced, which a lot of hotels use, is very different than a triple C, which is very different than an in-for sales and catering. And so we, we either had to just, you know, decide that we were going to be everything to everybody, which is usually not a good path yeah. in terms of a product. Yeah. Or we'd be very targeted where we were really good at the booking software side of things. And that's what we ended up doing. Um, and so in the process, we we took our system, which was one software system to one booking system and actually took that and, and pivoted it so that it could integrate with multiple different systems of record. And to your question, one of the things about this vertical is it's very similar to travel like when Expedia couldn't put up a real-time price. And the reason mm -hmm. I say that is that we've had to work with the end venue reservation software providers to even get their API to the point where it can do what we need to be a booking system. Like those venue systems were built to be, were built to be um, reservation systems. They were built to be efficiency, you know, workflow systems. They mm -hmm. were never built to be booking system yeah overall so you so fill a lot the booking of what system part you you're fulfilling yeah. the booking system part okay exactly and there's a lot of work that we have to go into to basically consult with the end people um to to actually get the system to the api to the point where it does what we need and i can give you like a really simple example of that is that if you think in travel one of the fundamental things is travel is there's a time that say like an airline seat is available and there's a price associated with that airline seat. Mm -hmm. So if you look at all of the event reservation systems, almost none of them associate a time block with a rate. Mm -hmm. yeah. And that may seem really simple, but like we have to be the translator, be able to associate those things to move them into sort of the, the digital booking page overall you might have rates somewhere and you might have you know availability somewhere but the question is is like what does this room cost on thursday at 9 yeah. p.m no that makes sense so we do a lot of that translation and work with the end apis to bring the system and it's very hard to believe but you know at some point expedia wasn't there was a time when expedia didn't have real-time pricing because it didn't exist yeah. And that's sort of where the meeting and event vertical is. It's being built up in terms of the connectivity uh, overall. And, you know, I think it's going to look very different in the next five years in a, in a great way. Okay, that's good. But it sounds like you, you were obviously an early mover in, in, in this uh, space, eh? Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, so so when, you first lost your, uh, when you first launched your MVP, what was the process of, get, of getting your first few customers? And, and was it difficult? Or was it like, oh my God, this is, we really need this. Or was it pretty easy sell? sell? Uh, you know, those first few customers were, were hard to get, but you really, we, they didn't quite know that they were our first few customers. Oh, uh, yeah. You know, we went in and sort of pitched our view and our idea and built that relationship. And, and so we were able to convince them based on the efficiency and the value that we brought rather than like a track record of hundreds and hundreds of customers overall. And one of the ways we did that is that if people had, uh, and when I say first customers venues, because one of the number one things you need is you need supply to be able to provide the digital booking. And so one of the ways that we got around that in the early days was that if 
event planners came to our website and had needed an event, we would go out and actually source venues for them and then sign venues up in the process with that event. And so we sort of, you know, you know, drank our own Kool-Aid and said, hey, event, event planners want to book differently. We have this really large event, you know, come, come within our platform, do digital booking, check it out. And that, that worked really well because instead of just calling and calling with the promise of something, we actually came to them with something tangible that they could react to. And that was really how we got our first 10 to 20 venues into the platform overall. Okay. And what were those, what were you, was the a package? Like, how do you do your pricing? Is it, um, is per event or, or is it like a monthly so that they, um, you know, they're planning, like you, you, I imagine most of these places, these venues are having monthly events. So this is something that they want to keep on as a monthly um, package. Is that right? So we do a mix. We do um, a monthly fee and then we do a transaction fee. Uh, okay. for bookings that we send them and the monthly fee covers sort of the general management of the venue the connectivity that we provide um general exposure and then there's the booking fee for any events that we send them okay so it's both though so they don't have an option okay um and 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 what was the price like what was the price for the first few people like how in other words how quickly were you getting up to say five thousand zero to five thousand mrr uh, you know, I think we charge them around a hundred dollars a month okay. overall for that early software. Yeah. Um, you know, it was if you think about it, uh, most events, you know, the average booking on our platform is in the five thousand to seventy five hundred dollar range. So to charge them, you know, what would be the equivalent of roughly a little over a thousand dollars per year was pretty um, a pretty reasonable ask at the time. Yeah. Yeah. Overall to enter the network. Okay. And so, so uh, how and how was you, how was the marketing in the early? Was it kind of uh, in the early days getting up to where you're still bootstrapping at this time? Uh, was it just you, or or um, just you and then the of course the team? Okay, the technical um, lead, and then it was just me. I just did a lot of you know have a great network, calling up friends at companies. You know, I I did a lot of the venue sales uh, uh-huh. in the early days, so I got us our first customers. And the way that I got them, as I said, is that I really, you know, called up my friends at companies and said, hey, you know, if you've got an event, come to me, I'll help you. And then I would sign venues up in the process. Um, and so I sort of, you know, did did both sides. I was the one generating the event planner demand. And I was the one generating the software demand. And then when we raised our first round, um, um, we raised a, a small friends and family round to sort of, you know, really get the product to a great place. And then when we raised our seed round. We actually ended up hiring a few salespeople um, to help me really grow that network. Okay. So, so um, how long was it before you did the first friends and family? Like, where were you at financially? Do you, uh, do you remember? I mean, I think we spent, you know, in maybe in the hundred thousand, one hundred and fifty thousand. Okay, so this is all your own. This, that's all your own money at that time, eh? Or you're yeah, sort so of we using. We've done a little bit of savings, you know, okay. overall um, okay. into it. But you know, we got the company fairly far without yeah. money, because you know the the clock starts the second you take that first outside dollar. Yeah. Um, and we ended up taking a friends and family round just because we felt we couldn't actually get the product to a really good place without it uh, yeah. overall. And then our seed round was really designed to hire some salespeople. Uh, okay. And then, you know, our series A was designed to really start to like expand into more market. Okay. Overall. 
Okay. So uh, walk me then through the process of friends and family was, um, what was, how, how difficult was that? Was that pretty easy? Was it like, you felt pretty confident. Listen, I've already, uh, this is going And was it easy to get money at that point? And what were you trying to get like 150,000 or what was it? I think we raised 250 or I think we raised 300,000, somewhere in the okay. 350,000. That's good. 000. Yeah. So first off, it's always hard to raise money. Um, yeah. You know, it's much easier as like a second time entrepreneur once you have a track record. But yeah, it's, it's, it's very hard. I don't think it naturally, I mean, there are always some companies who it literally either like I have 10 term sheets, um, yeah. you know, but I just don't think that's the norm. And that's how I always advise entrepreneurs who come to me and ask me how we raised the money that we did is that it just takes persistence and the willingness to turn over more rocks and, you know, not, not be put off when there's a no. I mean, my, my, my worst scenario always is like when people don't say no right away, but you know, my, yeah, what I sort of now, leading you on or something. Yeah. Completely. Like my track record has always been the people who say yes are the ones who are like at a yes almost from day one. Yeah. Uh, and the, what I would say on the friends and family round is, you know, we, we, nobody, we found that we were able to get a lot of friends and family to invest. And then what was interesting about that is that we, they, none, nobody put in a lot of money. So it was a lot of people, but it was sort of money that they could risk um, in that respect. The other thing is, is that we ended up getting some really great, well-connected angel investors in that friends and family round because we'd already had a little bit of momentum on the friends and family yeah. round. And I always find, you know, it's always easier to get more investors as you already had some investors. Yeah. And so the focus was, hey, we already have X amount of dollars committed. Do you want to come in? Yeah. Uh, overall, but it was it was not easy. You know, like we have raised money, but I will tell you, like I don't never believe fundraising is an easy journey. I think it's I think it's easy for some people, but I think that's the minority. And so, you know, I find that entrepreneurs that are the most successful at raising money tend to just be really good at being persistent and turning over more rocks and developing relationships really early on and realizing that, you know, you're going to get a lot of no's and just realize it's more of a game. Like, you know, if you, if you get, if if you get 99 no's and one yes, that's still okay. Cause you really don't like, you might only need one yes. And so it's it's a way to think about it in that respect and just get really thick skin and, and that. You know, it took me some time to get there. You know, I used to, I mean, every entrepreneur makes that mistake of going back to the person who's not super warm because they haven't given you an official no multiple times. And I've learned to just say, great, you're not in this. Let's move on. Like, I'll update you in six months. Um, And just thinking about it in a very different way in terms of how you create that focus overall. So really like no answer, no answer is really a no is, is what. Oh, no answer like, is yeah. always a no. <laughs> yeah, yes. Just, you know? So what you're really saying is no. Yeah. 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 The other thing is, is that I know this sounds interesting is that um, there's a, you know, people will sort of not give you an answer, but mm-hmm. you'd be surprised if you if you are really direct with people and mm-hmm. just say like, "Give me a yes or a no." Mm-hmm. You can usually close close loop in that yeah. respect, or they'll say it's a no, but it becomes a yes when. And so yeah. I've also gotten really good at some people will just 
leave it out there as an option value. You have to learn how to be really good at pinpointing what the objection is and figuring out a, whether it's ever worth it to come back to them, whether there's something that like, once you do that, it's worth it, or they're just always going to be in the camp of a no. Um, and so there's also an art to learning how to do that uh, overall. And I've gotten much better at it over time. What's what, like, what's the art? Let's walk down some of the, some of the secrets that you've, that you've uh, learned. I mean, is it just getting experience or, or is it just getting thicker skin or knowing where to look like, like if you're going to raise money now, what would you say are some of the biggest lessons you've learned compared to when you were first starting? I would always say a first thicker skin overall, okay. um, cause you're going to get a lot get of notes used to and, know. And, get used to know. And, and don't and think of it as part of the game overall yeah you know it's just it's not it's not like a personal thing um, yeah. generally um as i like to joke too there's always vcs who say well, they do seed um but they usually seed only companies that like they know the founder or a second time founder okay. overall so like you know really understand the person that you're pitching the other thing that has worked really really well um i have found is you can use a lot of online resources to gather a database of target investors but don't don't cold email them so gather the list yourself and okay. don't use those online databases but then go through your network and try to find somebody who can introduce you to them okay overall. that sounds very that's a very uh, helpful so so for example you might go is linkedin where you kind of would build the resources or where do you yeah like I'll go on Angel's List and look like in the early days, I would go on Angel's List and see, you know, who had invested in this type of company. And then I would basically go through LinkedIn and try to find in connections to them. Okay. The other thing that I have really found is that, you know, you're, in the end, like the job is to make sure there's enough money in the bank, you know, as, as a founder always um, to run the business. But, you know, part of being able to get to that point sometimes is building connections and industry contacts before, before you ever need it. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and like a great example of this is that I, you know, when we decided that we were going to work embark on more of this integrated path, you know, we had this one-to-one -one relationship. We had our own software system. We had our own booking um, solution. I, I realized I was like, I don't really know that much about, I know how the global distribution system works in travel, but I don't really know that much about how it scaled, what the issues were. Mm -hmm. And I basically went out to my network and said like, hey, does anybody know somebody who was at Safer um, or at Amadeus? Like, you know, is there anybody who's willing to give me 30 minutes of advice? And the reason I put that out there is that sometimes I think the best early investors um, are people who really understand the industry because they're going to get it. They're going to, they're going to, you know, understand what you're trying to do faster than anybody else. So if you have a track record, put that aside. It's a lot easier to get invested. Yeah. But if you don't have a track record, industry people will intimately get what you're trying to do a lot faster. Mm -hmm. Okay. But obviously, you you know, you want to raise capital from those types of angel investors. But like your downside is they're going to give you 30 minutes of awesome advice. Yeah. Overall. Yeah. So I always go in and say, hey, what can I learn from this person? Overall, mm -hmm. what advice can they give to me? Who else can they introduce me to? And hey, maybe they'll be interested in investing overall. But like, you know what? My downside is like, I've just made an amazing connection and they've given yeah. me 30 minutes of advice that will make my business better. 
And what I found is if you start that and you get a few people and you say, who else should I talk to? You start mm -hmm. to create this network. Okay. And, and what you're doing is going back to this numbers game. You don't have to push anybody too hard. Usually the people that are interested sort of come to you and say, oh, I'm really interested. Like, could I actually invest alongside this? Mm -hmm. And you're going you're gonna to meet a lot of people and you're going to find, okay, maybe I'm a good fit with this person, but not with this person. But, you know, in the end, you've got 30 minutes of great advice from somebody who maybe has relevant feedback or experience in your vertical as well. Okay, yeah, that that's that sounds very helpful. Um, so from now, um, are you still go are you still going at, back out and looking for funds, or is it mostly you're going to your VCs and getting follow on, or or what's the like what's your process now? Well, in a world of obviously coronavirus, you know, we just think of, you know it's better to go to insiders in this market than outsiders, okay. just because yeah. you know there's a world of. Um, there's a lot of uncertainty in the world yeah. right now. Um, but our focus has actually been on really trying to be um, very capital efficient and scale through, you know, larger partnerships or enterprise yeah. overall, rather than having to, you know, raise a lot of capital um, to make this. You know, if you look at Open Table raised $50 million to build um, their network, you know, our goal is to not have to raise that type of money. So we've also really looked into like, how can we build a really massive network in a very capital efficient way by thinking a little bit more about working within the ecosystem that already exists to partner mm -hmm. and scale um, through channels overall. Okay. And um, in this environment, I imagine, you know, events obviously aren't happening. What, what's the sort of feedback that you're getting from your customers right now? And what's the, how long do you think, um, they, they can sort of survive and what's what's the feeling in this uh, on the street right now for your for your in your sector because uh, I'm feeling it as well yeah. you know well there's a lot of uncertainty obviously and you know nobody knows the exact timeline overall mm -hmm. so you know hey if I could sit here and predict the timeline great maybe I should be running like the CDC so I will not say that I can predict yeah. the timeline of coronavirus what I what I will say that I can predict is what trends I think will come out of this for meetings mm -hmm. and events. Mm -hmm. And that over the last six months, there have been a lot of chatter around automation and digital booking in meetings and events. Mm -hmm. And one of the things is, is that one of the unfortunate things with coronavirus is if you look at venues, they've had to cut headcount. Um, they've had to, you know, really, they've had to furlough a lot of teams. They're likely closed right now. And so on the other side, what you typically see is you don't typically see these types of businesses come up to the full level of labor that they had before. And so what we believe is that the coronavirus could really spur a lot of automation in booking mm -hmm. that, that venue book can drive. And if you look at the 08 financial crisis yeah. in the travel sector, you saw an acceleration of the shift from offline travel agents to online um, digital booking via channels like Expedia and booking.com. And so we predict that you're going to see similar shifts in terms mm -hmm. of people's um, behavior, because let's say you had a 10 person sales team at your hotel prior to coronavirus, you might only have a five person sales team now. Yeah. And so you really need to automate. Yeah. The, uh, the other trend is that we specialize in, short-term quick turnaround bookings yeah and anecdotally what we're hearing out of asia is that those bookings are coming back faster than really large events so if you think about a, a company 
if you're booking, say, a small in-person meeting, you know, you're maybe spending, say, $10,000 on that event. Nobody has to get on a plane. You know, it's, it's usually a pretty short booking window. So you're booking it within usually around a month. So first off, you have some clarity on what the situation is. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you're booking a, multi, a massive user conference that might mm-hmm. be six to nine months out, you're sitting there questioning, okay, is coronavirus going to recur next winter? Is it going to be worse? You know, are we going to have a worse season next year like we did with the Spanish flu where the second season is actually worse? And that's a million dollar event. And so yeah. I think in the area that VenueBook specifically plays in small, quick turnaround okay. automated bookings, there's going to be a, there's a, going to be a massive behavior change that comes out of coronavirus okay. that we can, you know, help supply. But there's still a lot of uncertainty over there. I mean, yeah. you know, our traffic's down, our bookings are down because you literally just aren't even allowed to gather right yeah. now. And so yeah. what, what we're really seeing is sort of what's it going to look like and how can they automate things on the, on the other side. So it sounds like you then you're sort of got your eyes on, ahead on maybe a pivot or do you not even need to really pivot for these smaller, uh, these smaller uh, venues? No. no pivot. It's just that those are okay. the types of bookings that we special in right now with okay. these venues. So, so we specialize in the quicker turnaround meetings and events with our digital booking technology. Okay. So perfect. So this could end up being, it could end up being good for you guys down the road. So you're sort of preparing mm-hmm. that way. That's mm-hmm. good. Um, I mean, the hardest thing right now is, I mean, our, you know, like for example, our, our venues are chefs. So we can't yeah. even, you know, I mean, can't if, even communicate if an inquiry really. comes in, yeah. you know, it's sort of like, is that event manager still on staff? You know, yeah. is anybody even there? What's going on? That's actually our biggest uh, thing right now. It's sort of like who's even available to speak to um, in this world, just where the world has kind of gone quiet in these events, and especially, you know, in venues because they're not allowed to host events. So there aren't many people there, and they've had to furlough, unfortunately, a lot of their teams here in the short term. Yeah, that's right. Um, listen, we're, we're getting close to the end of our allotted time. So I wanted to thank you very much for, for your time, Kelsey. Um, where can people reach you if they, uh, if, if they have any questions or, um, or are interested in, in um, learning more about VenueBook? Where, where's the best place to reach you? One of the best places to reach us and it comes to like a couple of members on the team is just info at VenueBook.com. Okay. Uh, overall, or if, you know, venues are interested, they can reach out to sales at venuebook.com. And those all come to a big chunk of the team. So I will also see those, but you know, anybody can answer those. We're happy to connect and would love to hear from event planners and venues, what they're doing um, in this sort of uncertain time and how they're thinking about events right now. Too. Yeah, me too. I'm, I'm looking forward to see, seeing this sort of, we come out of this and seeing what direction um, we all start heading, but it sounds like, uh, it sounds like it's going to be a change. There's going to be some changes for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Very good. Okay. So thank you so much for your time, Kelsey. Well, thanks for having me today. Okay. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Big Break Software Podcast with your host, Jordy Wardman. Be sure to click subscribe and check us out on the web. Keep listening and your software big break could be right around the corner.